Um, and so before we move into the primary uh, part of our show, which we'll be talking about the Brexit, first we'll have a bit of an update on US politics. And so not too much happening. We've, of course, had some outrageous Donald Trump tweets, but that's nothing new. What's perhaps uh, more interesting is looking towards the Democrat side, where Bernie Sanders, who is still in the race, but... Um, pretty clearly will not be the Democrat nominee, has come out for the first time saying that in November, which is the general election, he will be casting his vote for Hillary Clinton. So what that's that's interestingly about as close as you can go to an official endorsement without actually uh, endorsing a candidate. And so it's clear that he's not yet conceded in the sense that his campaign hasn't been suspended and he's uh, yet to formally endorse Hillary Clinton, but it's looking by all accounts that he's throwing his support in behind her enough. And so a lot of experts are saying mm. this is probably the point where Bernie Sanders is giving up on chasing the presidency. There were rumours and there's been a bit of talk about him uh, trying to push for a brokered convention, which is a convention which would allow him potentially to receive the Democrat nomination uh, through unbinding democratically elected delegates. But it looks like uh, the Democrat race is finally wrapping up um, uh, and moving a little bit onto the Republicans. Uh, we've seen a growing movement within the Republican delegates who are legally bound to vote for Donald Trump uh, revolting against that system, uh, either by uh, filing class action lawsuits, which there have been a few of, uh, against uh, the Republican National Committee in order to free them from uh, their binding vote in order to vote for another candidate. And also there are a significant amount of delegates who are simply going to are planning to avoid the rules completely and to go in for another uh, candidate. And so although a lot of the media is saying that probably they don't have the numbers to change the um, nomination process in any significant way, it's still just kind of adding to the whole uh, Republican Party backlash against Donald Trump uh, issue. And so we'll be keeping an eye on that. The Republican and Democrat national conventions are next month. And we'll, of course, have a wide coverage from that, including uh, speeches that were given, vice presidential picks, and, of course, our forecasts for the general election. Uh, and so I suppose now we move on, uh, and we'll talk a bit with Taryn now, about what's probably the most important and one maybe one of the most significant political decisions probably in the entire world for, for the last little while. Mm. Um, and so, first of all, Brexit, brief introduction, what is it? Well, Brexit is a portmanteau of the words British exit, and it's been a sort of a bogeyman for moderates and leftists across Britain and across Europe for a long while now. And we've just seen arguably the most important political decision of a generation in Britain and one of the biggest electoral upsets in recent history. On the 23rd of June, British voters cast their ballots and went to bed with the majority of newspapers, the majority of the media, and the majority of politicians predicting an easy win for the Remain side of this campaign. However, they woke up with the news that at 20 to 5 in the morning on Friday, the 24th of June, Britain had voted to leave the European Union, ending its 43-year-long relationship with the world's largest economic and political union, becoming the first ever sovereign state to vote to leave it. And so, obviously, this has uh, had a lot of effects all over the country and as well as uh, just generally Europe and the rest of the world. And so the British pound... Uh, has dropped to its lowest point in, in how long? It's its lowest point since 1985, and it's the worst single-day drop in the pound's value in history. This has beaten out the 2008 global financial crisis and the 1992 Black Wednesday drop. It's so, so is that good news for anyone, or is that just totally bad? I mean, now supposedly be a good time to invest in, well, buy stuff from Britain? 
It's good news if you're not particularly interested in investing in Britain, but if you'd like to get some British pounds cheaply, it's definitely quite good. It's very good, too, if, like Nigel Farage, you're a member of the European Parliament yeah. whose <laughs> salary is given in euro. He's effectively given himself a 10% pay rise, which is just another victory for him well, as a result of this referendum. We've also well, seen a bit of a, a rise in online purchases from the United Kingdom. Uh, buying on Amazon and other related sites has gone up significantly in the United Kingdom yeah, would, just because it's it's now comparatively so much cheaper yeah. to import and to buy products from the United Kingdom. Uh, so what you mentioned Nigel Farage, what happens to his UK Independence Party and now uh, that we have independence? In the background, the UK Independence Party is a party which is basically founded on the idea to get England out of the EU. Um, and so they uh, have a few seats in... Uh, British Parliament right now. Just, they, just the one. Just they, the one they seat. They received 3.9 million votes in the last general election, but owing to the system used in Britain first past the post, they retained one seat. That's Douglas Carswell, the MP for Clacton-on-Sea in Essex. Nigel Farage himself, the leader of the party, is a MEP, a member of the European Parliament in Brussels. All right. So, but what happens to his party now? What do you expect to happen with UKIP? Well, like most... Uh, predictions we're going to make, the honest answer is no one can say with any absolute level of certainty this is definitely uncharted territory, but a lot of people have cast doubts on UKIP's long-term future as a political party. Mm. Um, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, has said he's going to step down before the Conservative Party conference in October, which means he's likely to be replaced by a Eurosceptic as leader of the party and, by extension, Prime Minister. And a Eurosceptic at number 10 would arguably take the need for a party like UKIP out of the political mainstream. So what candidates are we looking at to fill David Cameron's shoes at the moment? Well, the name on everyone's lips is, of course, Boris Johnson, the populist and extremely well-known former mayor of London. Um, he's probably the most well-known and most popular of the conservative politicians in Britain right now. He was the unofficial figurehead of the Leave campaign, and we're expecting not a lot of resistance. The only other names being thrown about are Theresa May, a very quiet um, Remain supporter, actually, and the longest-serving Home Secretary in the United Kingdom in over 100 years. But that's obviously a very distant second to the possibilities of Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative So uh, Party. no hope for an MP for... Uh uh, MP Jacob Rees-Mogg? Oh, the Honourable Member for the 19th Century. No, he's very popular. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a very, he's very Eurosceptic. I mean, he mm. was talking, I was watching a speech uh, recently by him given before uh, the Parliament discussing uh, European politics and why Britain should leave the EU well before it was really on anyone's lips. So I'm disappointed that he's not uh, in the short list. Throwing his hat in the ring, his top hat. Monocle. And that was man-voted posh uh, in British Parliament. And if you're a long-time follower of our program, you'll know when we're back on Hi-Fi FM, we play quite a bit of Jacob Lee's Moog. It's quite an entertaining character. But um, Taryn did drop the name Boris Johnson, who is likely at this point to be Britain's next Prime Minister. And I'm just going to play a quick clip from him. It's two minutes long uh, from the recent debate for over Brexit. Boris, Boris Johnson... At the end of this campaign, I think you'll agree there is a very clear choice between those on their side who speak of nothing but fear of the consequences of leaving the EU and we on our side who offer hope. Between those who have been endlessly rubbishing our country and running it down and those of us who believe in Britain. 
They say we can't do it. We say we can. They say we have no choice but to bow down to Brussels. We say they are woefully underestimating this country and what it can do. If we vote leave, we can take back control of our borders, of huge sums of money, 10 billion pounds a year net, of our tax raising powers, of our trade policy, and of our whole lawmaking system. The democracy that is the foundation of our prosperity. And if we stand up for democracy, we will be speaking up for hundreds of millions of people around Europe who agree with us, but who currently have no voice. And if we vote leave and take back control, I believe that this Thursday can be our country's Independence Day. And so that was Boris Johnson speaking in the, a recent debate uh, on the Brexit. And so talking more about the appointment of a new Prime Minister. So obviously um, yesterday for us, uh, David Cameron, it was around uh, dinner time when he announced that he'd be stepping down uh, as the Prime Minister. And I think later we could play a bit of that speech. Um, but so what happens now in terms of actually how the Conservative Party chooses their new leader? Do they, does David Cameron choose his successor or is the, what uh, role does the party or like the members of the Conservative Party have in that? Well, it's owing to a system of the British parliamentary system in particular that uh, a prime minister cannot go to the Queen and resign his premiership until he has a clear idea who it is that will be succeeding him. Since the Conservatives have an absolute majority in Parliament, the prime minister will obviously be the leader of the Conservative Party. And the leader of the Conservative Party is chosen, first of all, by the Conservative Party caucus. That's the total of all the MPs of the Conservative Party in Parliament. And, uh, do you know how many they have uh, in currently occupying British Parliament? It's... 330 and something, I believe. Right. Okay. And they will first of all select a short list of two candidates. Then these two candidates will be put to a vote by the general membership of the Conservative Party across the country. Now that's roughly 150,000 people, or I believe 0.02% of the general <laughs> British public. And it's a highly unrepresentative sample, of mm. course. The Conservative Party membership, they're obviously more conservative than the rest of the British population, but there's also a lot of demographic disparity. The Conservative Party membership is a lot more white than the rest of Britain as a whole, and figures in the New Statesman say that the average Conservative Party membership's age is 67. So what, what we might be expecting to see is having a new Prime Minister chosen by such an unrepresentative sample of the British public could be the impetus for an uh, early election. Uh, and so, in terms of getting a new prime minister, uh, do you think that's going to result in a significantly changed uh, party platform for the Conservatives? So do you think that this, as a flow-on to Brexit, we're going to be seeing a lot more, a different brand of Conservative policy for the United Kingdom? Well, obviously, a lot of that will have to depend on who becomes prime minister. Uh, a leader like Boris Johnson, for instance, is far more socially conservative than David Cameron had been. But for the most part, the only real major change we'll expect to see in the near future is a... Um, change in the policy towards Europe, naturally. This is going to be a Eurosceptic government that's going to be focused on exclusively negotiating Britain out of the European Union. All right, uh, we'll break briefly to a song now and we'll get back uh, to talk a little bit about uh, the Labour Party of United Kingdom, some more about the economics and then what's going to happen for the future of the UK and the EU. Uh, carrying on with 
our relevant song choice. This is Pink, Please Don't Leave Me. And so we're back on Capital Hard Talk, Wellington Access Radio, 7.83am, or streamed online at www.accessradio.org.nz. We're here back in the studio uh, talking about the Brexit and getting straight back into that. uh, Taryn Malloy, our European correspondent, talking about the uh, new leadership of uh, the Conservative Party. Obviously, Boris Johnson is a figure that's quite controversial within the Conservative Party, and so there'll obviously be some demographic splits there. What do you think that's going to pan out like? Do you think there's a likelihood of, of having somebody else who's perhaps more liked by the Conservative Party? Well, it's important to remember, first of all, that Boris Johnson is, by most accounts, the definitive front-runner for the leadership of the Conservative Party and, by extension, the Prime Ministership of the United Kingdom. And that's owing mostly to his support among the broad population and among the Conservative Party membership in the rank and file. The difference with Boris Johnson, though, is he's far less popular than certain other candidates in the parliamentary Conservative Party. But we could reasonably expect quite a few of those to vote against their personal interests in the hopes that Boris Johnson would be a better Conservative leader in a general election. Now then, the main ideological split in the Conservative Party in Parliament, of course, is to do with Europe, as with most things. And what we're expecting is there's a possible challenge from Theresa May, the quite high-profile Home Secretary and very moderate Remain backer who actually won a lot of right-wing Conservative hearts during her conference speech as well. So we could expect the possibility of a protracted leadership race between Boris Johnson and Theresa May, but after such a divisive vote as the EU referendum, it's quite likely the Conservative Party would rather focus on a quick solution, (coughs) a quick new Prime Minister, and quickly getting back on track to actually pulling the United Kingdom out of the EU. So what what it seems like is um, Europe's fallen apart in a way, all due to a Tory infight. Is that what we're looking at here? Well, there has been some analysis looking at it that way, but it's important to remember that, first of all, um, a Tory infight wouldn't extend to 52% of the British population who voted to leave. And this has been a major issue in the Conservative Party for a long time. It was divisions over Europe that led to Margaret Thatcher's resignation in 1990, and it was um, an inability to control a Eurosceptic backbench that led to John Major's loss in 1977. It's interesting to remember that when David Cameron first came to power as the um, first new Conservative Prime Minister since John Major in 2010, he had an ambition to be the leader of the Conservative Party to get his caucus to stop banging on about Europe, as Mm. he put it. He said that Europe had been a relatively minor issue for the public, that the Conservative Party had blown out of proportion, and he thought a referendum like this would probably be a simple and easy fix. Unfortunately for him, that's not gone quite the way he'd intended. And not for all leaders as well. So uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of Labour, is facing some backlash. Uh, We saw in some of Labour heartlands and the former coal mining areas in Wales and Swansea, and even in the northern parts of England, Labour strongholds vote very favourably for the Leave. So why are so many working people going against the European Union when their leader said, obviously it's the right thing to stay in? Well, it's a very interesting situation, first of all, when you talk about the way you say that Jeremy Corbyn wanted to stay in, because um, Jeremy Corbyn's from a very old guard and a particularly leftist part of the Labour Party. And it's worth remembering that for a long time, there'd been a lot of left-wing Euroscepticism about the EU, actually, seeing it as far too much of a force for free trade than for better social outcomes. For instance, it was the official policy of the Labour Party during the 1980s under Michael Foote to pull Britain out of the um, common market, as it was called then. And Jeremy Corbyn has definitely not been as pro-Europe as some of his more um, contemporary party forebears have been. He even said on the campaign trail that he was 
uh, 7 out of 10 in favor of Europe, which has led to a lot of questions <laughs> now that maybe if you were 10 out of 10, more mm. people would be voting to remain. And then you asked about the um, Labour voters in the heartland who voted out. And that's especially true in South Wales, as you put it, and in a lot of the um, Labour heartlands in the northwest, in Greater Manchester, and the outskirts of Liverpool, and northern industrial towns like Sunderland. And there's been a lot of belief in areas like that that the European Union had been an organization that only really benefited the middle class and up, and that they'd been feeling the worst pinches from um, influx of immigration and from the strain on public services. There'd been a lot of talk about the amount of money from the Leave campaign, had been talking about the amount of money that goes into Europe and how that money could be redistributed towards the National Health Service. Of course, since the Brexit vote, we've actually seen them go back on these comments and say, mm. actually, we don't think we can get that money elsewhere. We think we won't be able to put that into the NHS. There's been a lot of controversy around there. And um, lastly, there's just a lot of dissatisfaction among a lot of the working class in Britain that say that... Um, the status quo isn't working for them, and a vote to leave the EU is definitely a vote against the status quo. John Harris, the reporter at The Guardian, said he'd spoke to many voters across the North who put it very simply. They said, if you have no money, you vote out. If you have money, you vote in. And that's definitely a big divide we're seeing in Britain today. Massive divide, not just by class, but also by the countries. But we'll get into that in a minute. Um, and so, just finally on Jeremy Corbyn, obviously, David Cameron, who's the current Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative, has resigned over... Uh, this sort of Brexit thing. And, so and we'll, pl we'll play him in just a moment, by the way. Uh, there have been out. some calls for Jeremy Corbyn to do the same. Do you think that it's legitimate for Jeremy Corbyn to, to fall on his sword like David Cameron, or do you reckon he'll stay? Well, first of all, we need to give the listeners a bit of context here. So um, yesterday morning, two Labour MPs sent an official notice to the chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party calling for a vote of no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn wow. as leader of the opposition and leader of the Labour Party. And <clears throat> this will be discussed by the chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party when they meet on Monday. And it's quite likely it is going to go to a secret ballot among the Labour Party caucus. And we don't actually know for certain how we think they're going to vote. For instance, the New Statesman, the progressive news magazine that's quite closely tied to the Labour Party, says that either option is quite possible, with a slight edge to Jeremy Corbyn being rolled as Labour leader. It's worth remembering when he was actually elected late in 2015, the majority of Labour's parliamentary representation voted against him, and he got into the leadership on the backs of overwhelming support from the rank-and-file Labour Party membership, who will not be able to vote in this confidence motion. So certainly there could be some backlash if he is ousted from that um, core support base. But we're just going to go to a three-minute clip now of David Cameron announcing his resignation. It's a bit sad, really. You can feel the tears welting up at the end, specifically. In the only way I know how, which is to say directly and passionately what I think and feel, head, heart and soul, I held nothing back. I was absolutely clear about my belief that Britain is stronger, safer and better off inside the European Union. And I made clear the referendum was about this and this alone, not the future of any single politician, including myself. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months, but I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. This is not a decision I've taken lightly. 
but I do believe it's in the national interest to have a period of stability and then the new leadership required. There is no need for a precise timetable today, but in my view we should aim to have a new Prime Minister in place by the start of the Conservative Party conference in October. Delivering stability will be important and I will continue in post as Prime Minister with my Cabinet for the next three months. The Cabinet will meet on Monday. The Governor of the Bank of England is making a statement about the steps that the Bank and the Treasury are taking to reassure financial markets. We will also continue taking forward the important legislation that we set before Parliament in the Queen's speech. And I've spoken to Her Majesty the Queen this morning to advise her of the steps that I'm taking. A negotiation with the European Union will need to begin under a new Prime Minister. And I think it's right that this new Prime Minister takes the decision about when to trigger Article 50 and start the formal and legal process of leaving the EU. I will attend the European Council next week to explain the decision the British people have taken and my own decision. The British people have made a choice. That not only needs to be respected, but those on the losing side of the argument, myself included, should help to make it work. Britain is a special country. We have so many great advantages. A parliamentary democracy where we resolve great issues about our future through peaceful debate. A great trading nation with our science and arts, our engineering and our creativity respected the world over. And while we are not perfect, I do believe we can be a model of a multiracial, multi-faith democracy where people can come and make a contribution and rise to the very highest that their talent allows. Although leaving Europe was not the path I recommended, I am the first to praise our incredible strengths. I've said before that Britain can survive outside the European Union and indeed that we could find a way. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. And I will do everything I can to help. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. And I will do everything I can in future to help this great country succeed. And that was outgoing UK Prime Minister David Cameron. You're on Wellington Access Radio 783am with the Capital Hard Talk crew. Now over to Jack who's got a few questions for Taryn on the economic complications of the Brexit. And so obviously, as we've already briefly discussed, the British pound is at its lowest point in several decades. And not only that, but the British economy has lost trillions of pounds and some of the largest uh, England and Britain-based companies, such as BAE, the, lar- the third largest weapons company in the world, have lost trillions, um, billions, sorry. And so we've taken massive hits all over the economy uh, and spread out through the world. Uh, Hong Kong-based uh, stock brokery and as well as uh, places all over the world are feeling the effects. Do you think this will start to settle down or do you think we're in for a lot of economic turmoil for the for the foreseeable future? Well, it's undeniably been a very bad day economically for Britain and the rest of the world. The FTSE opened this morning, that's the Financial Times Stock Exchange based in London, to a unbelievable 8.7% plummet, which is um, definitely major turmoil in the markets. That's, that's trillions, isn't it? I, I think still billions, of course. Um, trillions is a particularly large number, especially um, in a country using pounds. But 
certainly a major economic loss. And so the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, came and gave a statement directly after David Cameron's resignation, pledging to do whatever he could do to keep the pound and the British economy stable. He's promised investors and he's promised the city of London that there's a lot of... Um, uh, there's billions of pounds being kept by the Bank of England as a line of credit to prevent a credit crunch, as we saw after the 2008 financial crisis. So the best we can hope for at the moment is that the Bank of England and other major financial institutions are more in touch to the risks. But it's also very important to remember, too, that the City of London had been banking on Britain remaining in the EU. And this is certainly a major shock to investors and to financial services the world over. And if there's one thing that affects the markets badly, it's a shock like this. And so this is all, of course, quite abstract to most of the people um, in Britain. What are the real effects of this uh, economic impact going to be on regular Britons? Well, there's still the possibility of this actually leading to quite a serious recession, which would, of course, hurt working Britons the hardest. The Chancellor, George Osborne, had, before the referendum result, said that a leave vote could actually result in an emergency budget, where he would have to actually revise his budget outcomes for the next year and introduce harsher austerity to make up for this um, economic shortfall. We've had no word from the Chancellor yet as to whether this emergency budget will be going ahead, but certainly there's a lot of economic turmoil to come. There's been speculation about major firms based in Britain, um, particularly manufacturing industries such as car makers moving off Britain into the continent as a result, and there's also rumours of the um, major financial services in the city of London moving onto the continent to a city like Frankfurt instead. But of course, this is just the day after the referendum result, and we've yet to know um, conclusively what the effects may be. But for the moment, a lot of instability and a lot of fear. Uh, and so looking more at us in New Zealand, do you think this will have any effect on New Zealand, the economy, just in general? Well, as we said before, um, if you're trading into British pounds, this is probably quite a good time. Um, there'd been a lot of speculation beforehand, particularly from pro-leave campaigners, that an exit from the European Union would allow Britain to trade freely with the world, trade freely with the Commonwealth. Um, of course, our Prime Minister John Key had actually disagreed with that notion. He said that it's New Zealand's trade policy to actually favour engagement with larger blocks like ASEAN and like the European Union, and that New Zealand wouldn't be particularly interested in trading um, unilaterally with countries like the United Kingdom. So uh, we've yet to see exactly, although it's worth remembering that proviso from the Prime Minister. I mean, everything is looking quite grim right now for something that 52% of uh, people in the United Kingdom voted for. Do we think this is going to start to get better, or do you think the pound is realistically going to stay at this low point and realistically firms are going to continue to loss? Or do you think this is just a, a minor shock? Well, it's quite likely that the pound will eventually stabilise after this initial uh, freefall, for lack of a better word. As for the effects on the British economy as a whole... That's definitely something that's going to depend on the policy taken by the Bank of England on the outcome of negotiations with the European Union, whether Britain will leave the EU but stay within the European economic area, whether they will stay within the European free trade area, or whether they will leave entirely, whether British firms are actually going to be exiting the island. There's a lot of unpredictables at the moment. Now, so. um, I'd like to move to, to still economics, but about... What exactly is going to happen now? So obviously they've uh, voted to leave the European Union, uh, but what ha what has to happen now for that to change? And what is an independent of the European Union Britain actually going to look like in terms of trade, movement, etc.? Well, to understand this, first of all, we need to understand the process by which Britain would conceivably leave the European Union. Um, during David Cameron's speech, which we had on earlier, he mentioned triggering Article 50. Um, 
well, not him triggering Article 50, but the next prime minister triggering Article 50. So Article 50 is a section of the Treaty of Lisbon, which is essentially considered the European Union's constitution. And it describes the process by which a member state would leave the European Union. Once Article 50 is triggered, this the nation will enter into negotiations with the 27 other member states. And these negotiations would be wide-ranging and definitely... Um, uh, extremely in-depth regarding a variety of different issues from free movement of people to border control to trade to defense to common criminal databases to basically the labyrinthine and lengthy and convoluted process of disentangling a nation from a 43-year-long mm. commitment of integration. Now, there's, the Article 50 states that there's a two-year deadline on negotiations, and it's extremely unlikely, according to the Financial Times and The Economist, that within two years these negotiations would be finished. Now, at the end of that two-year period, negotiations can be extended further, but only with the unanimous consent of every other member state. So it certainly looks like in terms of negotiations for Britain's future, the European member states are holding a lot of the cards. Um, okay, and so in terms of uh, one of obviously the largest parts of uh, being in the European Union is the open borders uh, and ability to travel all throughout European member states. What's going to happen uh, for that? Will people from Britain still be able to travel within Europe? And what's going to happen to all the people currently on European Union passports working and living in England? Well, this is definitely the big question at the moment, and it's going to be one of the major points of negotiation between Britain and the other European member states. It's a fundamental pillar of membership in the European Union, and one of the major sticking points that's led to a lot of uh, British citizens voting to leave the European Union. However, a lot of campaigners have favoured what they've called the Norwegian model. Norway, for context, is not a member of the European Union, but doesn't um, still complies with a lot of European regulations, and that's because Norway is a member of the uh, what's called the European Economic Area, or the EEA. Now, if Britain were to leave the EU but stay within the EEA, they would actually still have free movement of people. And it's quite likely that a British government that actually tends to favour policies of free trade with large blocs would remain within the EEA. But this would certainly leave a lot of Leave voters feeling quite disenfranchised mm -hmm. and even betrayed mm -hmm. by forces that had promised a control on immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when we get back, we'll go to a song now, but uh, we're going to talk a bit about the future of the United Kingdom itself and so uh, the potential for a second Scottish independence referendum and perhaps even a Northern Ireland. But now we have a, a song, I believe. And this is a familiar clip from the film The Sound of Music. And you're on Wellington Access Radio 783am with the Capital Hard Talk crew, Jack in the studio and Tara Malloy. And, of course, 19 years old today, our producer, Scott Dench. He's a bit embarrassed that I've just mentioned that, but oh well. Uh, I'm looking at the results from the BBC, and what we can see is a big uh, split uh, between the countries. So, once again, we have a big gold cluster of let's stay from Scotland, and all the way down through England and Wales, a lot of blue, which is the code for leave. So why, Taryn, uh, are we seeing such a split country and split into uh, how the nations are voting. It's, it's, it, I mean, why is one country voting to stay and one voting to leave? Well, I think, first of all, that's the kind of question that uh, demographic commentators and political commentators are going to be asking themselves for years and years to come. So, first of all, Wales. Wales surprised quite a few people in its... Um, 
I believe it was a 52-48 or perhaps a little bit higher vote. Uh, the for... exact number we have is 53.7. Wow, more than I thought. So mm. Wales had always been considered a fairly pro-European part of the United Kingdom and certainly defied a lot of expectations in its majority yeah. vote for leave. And the main reasons that people are pointed to for the Welsh vote to leave is there's a lot of... Uh, deprivation, a lot of poverty in mm. Wales at the moment. And that certainly tapped in into a lot of dissatisfaction in the um, general voting public as a whole with the status quo. And that certainly influenced a lot of strong leave votes in um, particularly Labour heartlands in Wales. Northern Ireland, conversely, voted with a fairly solid 55-45 roughly for um, remaining in the European Union. And a big factor in Northern Ireland is, as with most things in Northern Ireland, tied up with questions of British Unionism or Irish Republicanism and the Catholic-Protestant split. So areas that are traditionally quite pro-Unionist and favour union with the United Kingdom and are very pro-London voted very strongly to leave the United Kingdom. However, um, the parts of the um, Northern Ireland that see themselves far leave more the as EU, Irish. Oh, sorry, did I say leave the United Kingdom? Well, that's that's another story, isn't it? I mean, Scotland... Yeah, well, well, about their next, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's part of my misspeaking. So, just to recap, uh, pro-unionists in Northern Ireland voted primarily to leave the European Union, and...